You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning. Wow. What a worship time. Aren't you thankful for this group of worship leaders that lead us every single Sunday? Thank you, June, for that beautiful, beautiful song. Doesn't he have a gorgeous voice like an angel? And you know, I'm thankful for this group of people because for months when there was no one even here, for months when we were not even meeting physically, on Sunday mornings they came up and they led just like that. So that those of you that were out there in uh, Cyberland uh, would be able to be led to worship. Uh, and then when we went to where we were pre-recording, uh, they were coming up here all times during the week, putting the service together so that you would have an opportunity, sitting in your homes, to have an opportunity to, uh, to worship and hear God's Word. And, and I, just, I, I appreciate them for their faithfulness. These are volunteers, folks. Uh, these are people that believe that this is their gifting and this is their calling and they've committed themselves to, to serve the Lord Jesus in that way. Isn't that wonderful? Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Um, Derek and his family are doing an early Christmas in Arkansas uh, this week. And uh, he's a slacker, so he didn't come back. And they're probably watching with their families. I just wanted to do that for him. And, and you know, uh, so I'm having to fly solo this morning. And uh, I'm not sure. Sh- you know, I'm, I'm nervous. Uh, I've never done this too many times before. I, I still remember the first uh, solo flight that I took as a student pilot. I was extremely, extremely nervous, and, and I may even be more nervous today about having to do this by myself. No, actually, I have a few years, a few decades, actually, of experience of doing this by myself, but it has been a blessing these last couple of years for me to have Derek partnering with me. We study together, and we get, have the opportunity to come up here and teach together. And uh, he did it last week, and so I said, why don't y'all just stay over on the weekend, and I will carry it this weekend, and then we will come back together uh, after this, and we'll continue our tag team match. How about that? Matthew chapter 2, do you believe it's the most wonderful time of the year? Do you really believe that? Well, it all depends, doesn't it? It all depends on your attitude toward Christmas. It all depends on how you feel about Christmas. Now, I've said to you before, you know this, that I don't have warm, fuzzy childhood memories about Christmas. Uh, my dad was a town drunk, and my mother was Jehovah's Witness, and so we didn't, we, didn't, you know, we didn't celebrate Christmas. We didn't even acknowledge as a child coming up that there was Christmas. In fact, for me, Christmas was just like any other day, except that everyone else had new stuff. Now, don't y'all feel sorry for me? Don't you dare. I didn't even really, if you want to know the truth, I was really, as a child, not even all that cognizant of what was going on around me. It was only later that I got mad at my parents because I got cheated out of a childhood. But so when I come to Christmas, I don't bring a lot of those warm, fuzzy childhood memories that my children have and now that my grandchildren are having, and then I, hopefully that many of you have. And so I tend to look at Christmas and always have since I came to Christ at the age of 18 off the streets, I tend to look at Christmas theologically. I tend to look at it from a theological view. And, and most of the times when I teach on this subject, 
um, I, I, I approach it from that perspective. It's, it's theological, it's eternal salvific, if you will, to use a theological term, meaning for us. And actually, I'm in good company when I do that because that's the way the gospel writers viewed it. If you think about it, when Matthew was writing about the first Christmas, he didn't have previous Christmases to draw from. He had no warm, fuzzy, emotional memories of childhood because when Matthew wrote about Christmas, he was writing about the very first one. And so in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, he comes at this birth from a completely eternal perspective and theological perspective when he says, you shall call his name, speaking of this one who is born, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated is God with us. And so even Matthew, as he writes of this, he's looking at this not just from the aspect of a wonderful thing that is a birth of a baby, but he's looking at it from this theological perspective that it reflects this incredible divine mystery that this one who was born in Bethlehem was none other than the Creator God who wrapped Himself in human flesh. Wow. And this one came as fully human, yet also fully divine, which is something that's beyond, I don't know, my limited West Texas finite mind to even wrap itself around. How about you? Is anybody here today? How about you out there in Cyberland? No, can, can your little pea brain wrap itself around this concept that he was yet fully divine, yet fully human? No, that goes beyond our human capacity to understand. Yet that is how the Scripture presents the, <clears throat> the birth of Jesus. And so when we think about that, we could say, well, you know, because we always ask, well, what have you named the baby? Well, what is the baby's name? Well, on his mother's side, his name is Jesus. But on his father's side, his name is Emmanuel, eternal God with us. Well, how old is the child? Well, on his mother's side, he's newborn. He's brand new. But on his father's side, he's the Ancient of Days. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And so we could, we could go on and on and on that. From the, from the human side, what is he? But from the eternal divine side, what is he? And who is he? And so from the beginning, this is a divine, it is a theological mystery. And because of that, because of that, there have been, from all of history, so many varying attitudes toward Advent. Now, that's not a word that we use a lot. That is more of a word that the Episcopalians or, or Roman Catholics or, or, you know, other, but we don't use the word Advent much. And of course, having not grown up in, in church um, and just coming to Christ right at the middle of my senior year, my 18th year, and, and uh, kind of right off the streets, and six months later I was in college studying for the ministry, I, I realized the first Christmas of my freshman year, I realized that I had a whole lot to learn. Uh, because on the campus, they started, it was a Christian campus, on the campus they started talking about Advent. What is that? You know, and I was really a little bit shy to even ask, well, what's this Advent thing? But I had a friend in the dormitory that I'd gotten close enough to. I thought, well, I could ask. I said, what's Advent? And he knew I was a ministerial student because he was too. And he said, you don't know what Advent is? 
And I went, no. He said, that's a word that we use to refer to the birth of Jesus. And I thought, well, you know, it had, I knew it had something to do with the birth of Jesus, but I just didn't understand. It refers to this idea, the advent of Jesus. So now I'm all theologically educated, and so now I know what advent means. And some of you are sitting there going, you know, I've always wondered that same question. <laughs> because we don't really use the terminology that much. So this morning, I want to talk about some attitudes toward the Advent. And in our text, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, there are basically three of them that are reflected. And I suspect that you know someone that is illustrated by every single one of these particular attitudes. The first attitude that we come across is the attitude of apathy. You see, we're, all of us here are fairly familiar with the details of the story. Even if around Christmas time is about the only time that you ever went to church when you were growing up. We're fairly familiar with the, the, the details of the story, but there's something that you don't really know. And it's this. Jesus was actually born three years before he was born. You're going, now come on, James, you pulling my leg? No. Jesus was actually born about 3 B.C. Because about 525 years after the birth of Christ... We redated all of history, okay, and began to, to date all of history from the birth of Jesus. In 525 A.D., a fellow by the name of Dionysius Exegus devised what we live by now as our current calendar. It's called the Gregorian calendar, and it dated everything from year one, which was the year Jesus was born. The problem was that Dionysius was about three years off. And we know that now, we can understand it by astrological, astronomy type, not astrological, but astronomical kinds of things. If you're doing astrology, you know, we got to talk. But astronomical kinds of, of, of things, we understand that he, he was off about three or four years. But by the time that they discovered it, it was so entrenched that we just, we just kind of went with it. So when we talk about year one being Jesus' birth, actually, it was... Uh, he was born three years before that. So, here's the good news. We could actually say, folks, it's 2023. We just completely skipped 2020. I mean, it, like it never even happened. Isn't that great? I mean, you know, sometimes mistakes work out in our, in our favor. But anyway, that's just a little extra uh, astrological or astronomical information for you that you can, can be blessed by. But Matthew tells us that when Jesus was born, whether it was 1 or 3 B.C., that these wise men were guided to Jesus. It was, a, it was actually an astronomical phenomena. They were guided by a star. And, and there have been so many times through history that men have tried to explain this and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know there's any explanation. Let's just say God did it, okay? And that's an explanation enough for me. I don't really need a physical explanation. But God chose to bring these what are called wise men, to Jesus. And verse 2 tells us of Matthew 2 that he event, they eventually ended up in Jerusalem and they were looking for a king, so they went to the current king, who was King Herod, in Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the king of the Jews to be born? Now understand who Herod was. Herod was king over the Jews. He was appointed by Rome, but he himself was half Jew. Uh, but 
And that was the reason the Romans appointed him. They figured, well, he would understand the Jewish people that he was given there to rule over. But he was really more Roman than anything. But because he was half Jew, he understood the history of the Jews. And he understood that the Jews were longing for a Messiah. They were longing for this deliverer that would come. But because he'd been raised as a Roman, he wasn't, hadn't been really raised in the Old Testament, he didn't really know all of the details. And so the Scripture says that he called the scribes and the priests in to ask them, well, where is it that the, this child, this so-called king of the Jews, is supposed to be born? Where, what did the prophet say? And the scribes and the priests responded, well, in Bethlehem, and they quoted Micah, the, the Micah, the prophet, the last prophet of the Old Covenant, where that prophecy is given that the Christ, that the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem wasn't too far from Jerusalem. It's only about five miles. On a good camel, you could get there in 30 minutes, and if you walked, maybe an hour. And so the wise men went out from Herod's presence, and they hot-footed it. You can imagine, this is, they'd been on a long trip. They hot-footed it out of Jerusalem for Bethlehem because this was the summation of this long and dangerous journey that they'd been on to find that one that God had miraculously guided them toward. You can imagine how excited they were to get out of Herod's presence and go and be in the presence of this king of the Jews, this baby Jesus, that they longed for. But here's an incredible thing that we don't often think about, that the priests and the scribes, who are the ones that had all of the knowledge of the prophecy, the ones that Herod had asked in to say, well, give us the details. Where would this possibly be if this event has happened? The ones that knew that, they knew all of the prophecy. They, they were living anticipation of this Messiah's coming. They went home. You would think that they would have jumped on a two-humped Cadillac as quick as the, the wise men did to get to... That was, went right over your head, didn't it? There's one hump and there's two hump camels, okay? You, you would think that they would get there as quickly as they possibly could, but they didn't. They completely ignored this news. They were totally apathetic toward the potential birth of the king of the Jews. And why was that? Well, if you understand how the prophecies of the Old Covenant had been twisted and distorted by the religious leaders by the time of Jesus' birth, then you'll understand that these scribes and priests who knew the prophecies, they weren't even looking for a baby. What they were looking for was a grown adult who was a conqueror. They were looking for the Messiah who would ride in someday into Jerusalem with the, on a white horse with a sword in his hand, and he would drive the Romans out, and he would reinstate them as the rulers in the promised land in their own land. And they had so focused, they had so focused on that view of the Messiah that the news of a baby that was born held virtually no interest for them. Because they weren't looking for a baby. They were looking for a conqueror. They were completely apathetic. And as I think about the scribe, now they weren't too apathetic about him about 30 years later, were they? When he did grow up and when he did begin to preach the kingdom of God and when people did begin to declare him as the Christ and as the Messiah, and he wasn't as a conquering Messiah, he wasn't planning on creating a revolution and driving the... Then they weren't apathetic about him. But at his birth, their attitude was one of complete apathy. And I can't help but think about how every December 
This is kind of, it's, that, that attitude is represented in our culture. Every December, December on the focus is where? On Bethlehem, isn't it? We are laser focused. Our culture is laser focused on Bethlehem and on the baby that is born in the manger. And then the question begs itself, it screams to be asked, well, what about the other 11 months of the year? What attitude is there then? Am, am I, who am I like? Am I like the wise men or am I more like the scribes and the priests where, yeah, okay, for a short period of time, for four or five weeks every year, yeah, my focus is, is lasered on this baby in the Bethlehem, but beginning in January, well, it just kind of all goes away. We, many people, I've never had one of these, but I, there are all kinds of them, then, and they're really intriguing to look at the ways that they're dressed up and all that. The nativity scene, how many of you have a nativity scene? Okay, uh, they're, they're cool. I saw one the other day. It was all Star Wars characters. I'm not sure how the Lord feels about that. But, but you know, uh, people, people do Christmas in their own way. But, you know, after Thanksgiving, what happens? Well, you go up in the attic and you get the box out and you take the nativity scene out. You take the baby Jesus, you know, out and Mary and Joseph and the wise men and the shepherds and Darth Vader and who knows, you know, the... I mean, the whole shebang, you bring it out of the box and you put it in that place where on the coffee table or, or wherever where it can be a, in a central kind of place. But then after Christmas is over, what do you do with the nativity scene? You put baby Jesus back in his box where he belongs, right? And I just wonder, you know, there, there go the cattle that are lowing and the and, and, and the shepherds and the wise men and all of these various, and they go back in the box, and they go back into the box, back in the attic, until after Thanksgiving. And if you're really crazy, maybe before Thanksgiving each year, you put it out. But that's a whole different discussion. But I just wonder if that isn't somehow a reflection of many of us of what we actually do with Jesus. In, in December, he's the centerpiece. But come January, he just gets packed away in a box, and there's really nowhere else to be found in our lives. I'm reminded of the Peanuts cartoon. Charlie Brown says to Lucy, "'Tis the season of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. I suppose we can't make it last all year." And Lucy replies in her typical way, "'What are you, some kind of religious fanatic?' You mean that you would really want this atmosphere, this attitude to last all year? Yeah, yeah, Charlie Brown really did. But Lucy kind of reflects, no, that's good every now and then for a month or so. But then let's get back to real life and let's just put Jesus back in his box and put him back in the attic. And I wonder if, if, you, know, if you would be willing to just take a look inward and, and, and wonder. It, it, my focus this month, yes, it is a lot more on, but what happens in January? What happens in February? What happens in March? What happens in April? What happens for the rest of the year? Do I reflect the attitude somewhat of the scribes and the priests? And yes, you know, this is okay, but not, doesn't, there's not really anything to see here. It's just not that interesting. It's just not that important anymore. The second attitude is the attitude of antagonism. See, the priests and the scribes, they went home because they were apathetic toward the story of the birth of a baby. Herod's response, though, was on the other end of the spectrum. Herod had an antagonistic response to this baby. As a matter of fact, the Scripture tells us 
that Herod, after these wise men had revealed to him that they had miraculously been guided to this place because they knew that the birth of the king of the Jews was somewhere nearby, he had a completely opposite response. As a matter of fact, his response to this news of this king being born caused him to commit infanticide. Now, we think about that. Now, you think about that. The Scripture tells us that in order to prevent this baby from growing up and becoming a full-blown king that would threaten Herod's position, he goes into Bethlehem and, and has every male child from two years old and down slaughtered. In fact, a lot of people even hear that and go, you know, that can't really have happened. No, no, nobody does that kind of thing. Well, yeah, they do. By this time, Mary and Joseph had left Bethlehem, and so Jesus was not affected by this because the Heavenly Father knew that. But it sounds so horrible to think about killing every male child in a community like that from two years old and down. It stretches the imagination. But the truth of the matter is, folks, history records for us many things historically that have been done this bad and much worse, right? And if you just if you just understand history a little bit, how about this one? How about this one? Right here in America, we have slaughtered over 50 million unborn children with the full appreciation of the law since 1973. Wow. You know, compared to what we do in America, it makes Herod look somewhat like a saint. Just from two years old down in Bethlehem, how many kids could that be? Three or four hundred maybe? Maybe a hundred? Who knows how many people were in Bethlehem at the time? How many people could that really be? So let's put that right up against what we do in America with the approval of the law and with approval of some of our people. We slaughter more in one day to abortion than he did two years old and down. So it's a little bit hypocritical for us to cluck our tongues at Herod, don't you think? And say, what a bad dude. You might want to look in the mirror first before we cluck our tongues at him and look at what we do and some of us in some ways maybe even approve of this. We say, well, it's a woman's right. Well, Herod could have said it was his right to kill his rival. He was the king, and if there was another king, it was going to come against him, and it was his right as king to protect his throne. You go, James, I thought this was a Christmas sermon. Every time we open the Word of God, it opens us. And we are so prone to want to look at the actions of Herod or anyone else and cluck our tongues at what a mean and evil person. And we, right here, are complicit sometimes with our attitudes, with our leaders that we support. Don't you dare say a word negative about Herod until you look in the mirror and let the Holy Spirit of God shine His light into your heart. What was it 
that could possibly have caused him to do something like this. One phrase, king of the Jews. That phrase threatened Herod to his core. Because you see, at this time, Herod was at the top of the heap. He was the king of the Jews. He had been appointed by Rome because of his partial Jewish heritage and his full Roman heritage to rule over the Jews because at this time, Rome had the entire of Judea under their thumb. And they were servants to Rome, and so they appointed a king. And he was the king legally and literally over them. But he wasn't God's choice, was he? And he certainly wasn't the people's choice. He was Rome's choice. And the Jews hated him, as actually did the Romans. Because he was really a man without a country. Because he was half Jew, then he was seen by the Jews of Judea over whom he reigned as being a complete total traitor to his, that part of his heritage, which was Jewish. But he, to the Romans, because he was half Jewish, he was less Roman than they were. And so he was really a man without a country. And so he looked all around him constantly for threats that were coming at him. And he was a cruel and he was a dictatorial king over the Jews. And there were constant plots against his life among the Jews. The zealots, the Jewish zealots, were all the time looking for a way that they could drive the Romans out. And, and if they could get Herod out of the way, if they could assassinate him, then they might be able to ultimately convince the Romans that it just wasn't worth their time or effort to be in Judea. And Herod was aware of that. He was aware that his throne was always being Contested, So any hint of a rival king raised Herod's anxiety to the level that he was willing to do anything that he had to do in order to protect his reign and rule. Even a baby was a threat. Why would a baby be a threat to Herod? Because babies grow up, right? Babies grow up and Herod intended to be on this throne until his death. And he couldn't allow that, so he went into a murderous rage to protect his power. You see, frankly, folks, that wasn't the only bad thing that Herod did. You know, Herod, we know this historically. We know that, we know that he did that in Bethlehem from biblical revelation, but from history, written history, secular history, we know that Herod also killed his wife and all of his sons because he feared that possibly even his wife would want to usurp his throne, or one of these sons would grow up. And so Herod, in this, in this paranoid, schizophrenic kind of approach, he says, all of them must be put to death. He was antagonistic toward the baby Jesus. You know, again, and that does reflect a good bit of people's attitudes toward Jesus in our culture. This is not new news, is it? And actually... The reason that people are antagonistic toward Jesus in our culture is really for the same reason that Herod was, because he's a threat. Jesus is a threat to our reign and rule over our own lives. Not so much about a baby. No, that's why people are more willing to kind of put up with Christmas, and even kind of non-believers even willing to kind of participate in Christmas, because, you know, there's not a lot of threat to us as a baby a baby doesn't really threaten our reign and rule, but man, I'll tell you what, we don't, we often, we don't want nothing to do with that grown-up Jesus. 
Baby Jesus is all right, but we really don't want anything to do with that grown-up Jesus. I'm reminded this week, although I've never seen the movie, I've just heard people talk about it. Talladega Nights with Will Ferrell. You bad people. You've actually watched that movie? My son is a heathen. He's the one that told me about it. His whole generation, they're all just a bunch of heathens, aren't they? Will Farrell at the dinner table, remember in Talladega Nights, he prays to the baby Jesus. And when asked, why, why do you pray to the baby Jesus? He says, well, I like the baby Jesus. I'm attracted to the baby Jesus. Well, a lot of folks are attracted to the baby Jesus. A lot of people like the baby Jesus. They just don't want anything to do with that grown-up Jesus. That crucified, that resurrected, that ascended, that coming again, Jesus, toward that Jesus, no, there's a lot of antagonism. Why is that? The same reason Herod was antagonistic toward the baby, because the grown-up Jesus challenges us. The grown-up, this crucified, resurrected, ascended to the right hand of the Father, seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, makes claims upon us. He has the authority to claim lordship over our lives. He challenges us at every level in which we live. He challenges our own lordship. He challenges our own reign and rule over our own lives. Because why? Because He is Lord. But then, you see, we, we want to be Lord, and so that puts him in direct opposition with the flesh, doesn't it? Oh, can I get an amen here? You see, it's the grown-up Jesus of whom Isaiah said he is wonderful counselor, he's prince of peace, he's mighty God. It was that grown-up Jesus who said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that threatens our own lordship. He's the one of whom the Father spoke in Philippians chapter 2 through the Apostle Paul, I have given to him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the world hears that and declares, we like the baby Jesus. We don't care for that grown-up Jesus. And so we're very quick to put him in the box and put him back in the attic after the season when we think about his birth. He challenges our reign and rule. We want to be king. We want to reign. And so there is that spirit of apathy, there is that spirit of antagonism, but then there is that third spirit, there is that third attitude that's reflected in the text of Matthew chapter 2, and that is the attitude of adoration. The priests and the scribes, they were apathetic to the birth. Herod was antagonistic toward the birth, but the wise men were adoring at the birth. You see, these guys had it going on. These guys had it figured out. So in verse 2, they, they told Herod, we have come. He said, why have you come? And they said, well, we've come to worship him. He is king of the Jews. In verse 9 through 11, it says that's exactly what they did. They fell down when they found him in Bethlehem. And they, found, they fell down and they worshiped at the side of this infant that had been born because they knew he was so much more 
than this infant, that he was the king of kings. And the, the priests could have done that. The priests could have gone with them. But you see, they weren't interested in a baby. They were apathetic to a baby. Herod could have done that. It's just five miles away. But he was not interested for sure in the birth of this baby. In fact, he was antagonistic. He wanted the baby to be done away. It was the ones for whom it was the most difficult. Now get this. It was the ones for whom it was the most difficult who were the ones who bowed down and worshipped that day. Because you think about these wise men, the Scripture tells us not a whole lot about them, but one thing we can understand from what Scripture does tell us is that this was not an easy trip that they had been on to find this one whom God had communicated is the Christ, is the King of the Jews. It wasn't convenient for them. They had to be willing to overcome a great deal in order to get to this point where they could actually bow in adoration and worship. Think about a few of those things. First of all, there was a great distance. Verse, the, verse, the Scripture tells us that they were from the east. Okay? Well, Bethlehem was in the Middle East. And so the east is further east than Middle East, right? And we don't know exactly how far. Some have said they were from Iraq. We really don't know. The Scripture doesn't tell us. But we do know this. It was a long trip. It was not a day trip. It was a trip in that day and time by the means of travel they had that was weeks and even months. That certainly wasn't. So they, they faced the difficulty of the distance. And then they faced the difficulty of their own protection because uh, uh, the, the, the kind of travel that they were, they were limited to. They could walk, they could ride a camel, or they could, you know, get on a donkey. Um, no planes, trains, and automobiles for these guys. <laughs> I'm on a roll this morning, aren't I? I can't believe you heathen even understood what I just said. In other words, there were not exits along the way every other mile or so with a sign that said Chick-fil-A, next exit. I mean, they faced some real difficulty. It was, it was a long way. Not only that, but their lives, their very lives were at risk. And that day, traveling was dangerous business if you traveled over long distance. That's one of why Jesus, one of Jesus' uh, actual uh, parables is of the Samaritan, Remember? And, and the man who was on the road to Jericho, a very dangerous place, robbers fell upon him. That was not uncommon in that day and time. They would await, you know, travelers who were not able to defend themselves, and they would steal everything they had, and they would kill them. And so these three wise men who had been on this months-long trip over roads that were littered with robbers and thieves and wild animals and all kinds of lions, tigers, and bears, all of this kind of stuff, and then at the, <laughs> that was a little delayed. This is not the sharpest crowd. And then at the trip's end, they got to face this murderous man, Herod, whom we know murdered babies in Bethlehem from the Bible. And as I said, he had a reputation of being a murderous individual. So these three men risked everything they had. To find Jesus for what? That they may worship him. You know, on Wednesday nights, Derek, my young associate, has been doing a series on the cults. And some of you, I know, he's had a good group of people that have, many of you have been a part of the Wednesday night cults study. And I know that you've responded to that really well. He's talking, you know, about the cults that we face, the Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and all of those kinds of things. 
And those are, you know, some of them are, are large cults. I mean, they infect a, a many tens of thousands of people. But do you know the greatest cult in America? And I doubt that he's going to teach on this one on Wednesday night, although I may suggest that he does. It's the cult of personal comfort. That's the biggest threat to the gospel message in our country today. It's not Jehovah's Witnesses. It's not Mormonism. It's not Christian scientists. It's not Scientology. It is the cult of personal comfort. We put a high priority, Christians in America, on our comfort. And Americans in general. If it's not easy, if it's not convenient, if it's not comfortable, we'll take a pass. We'll pass on that. I'm going to wait till the comfort train comes along. You know, these wise men, in a sense, were the very first of a very long line of people who risked everything to worship Jesus. The long trip, the difficulty of the physical taxation on their bodies, the danger of the crooks, and then ultimately Herod at the end of it. I mean, I'm telling you, they risked it all, and all they did was bring him gifts worthy of a king and worthy of what the prophets had said and bow down to worship him. I had an experience a number of years ago. My son is 35 years old now, but when he was 15, 20 years ago, it's hard to believe, 20 years ago, he was he played high school golf. He went on eventually to play college golf and was a touring professional for seven years. He's, he retired at the ripe old age of 29. <laughs> wow, that sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> but when he was 15 years old, the summer after his sophomore year in high school, he and I got an opportunity. A friend invited us to go with him to Ireland to play golf. An entire week in Ireland. Now, that's where golf was born, right? And, and Zach lived for golf, and golf was woven into the fabric of you know, our whole lives. And, and so the opportunity to go to Ireland and play those links courses along the seacoast where the wind's blowing 50 miles an hour and you still go out and play because if you don't play in 50 mile an hour wind in Ireland, you don't play golf along the seacoast. And so we went and we played these world famous courses. And I remember one course that we were playing. We came up to a par three. And this par three was about 180 yards, but you had to drive the ball from the tee box all the way to the green, because if you didn't, there was this deep, deep gully, cavern, that you couldn't even go down in, that was between the tee box and the green. And this went way down. Went down about 50 feet, so you couldn't even get your ball. So if your ball didn't make it across, then it was gone. It was lost. And I thought, well, that's an interesting hole. And then over here to the right of the tee box, there was a plaque that explained the history of this particular golf hole, and it made a deep impact upon me. The story of this hole was centuries before, when religious persecution was heavy in Ireland, Christians would gather down in that hole, and they would worship. And if they were caught, they were put to death. And I thought... Wow, we're here hitting a little white ball over this place where brothers and sisters in Christ were so committed to worship him that they would hover down in this deep hole 
and pray together and share together and open God's word together at the fear of life itself. And I almost felt that it was disrespectful and heretical to even hit the ball over that particular hole. And I couldn't help but, at the moment, compare themselves to me. You see, they were there to worship at the risk of their life. I was there on vacation. There was no threat to me. We were having a great time, loving it, enjoying life, living the life. And I couldn't help but think, I wonder if I was here for their purpose, if I would be even willing to be here. If the threat of worshiping Jesus was the cost of life, Lord Jesus, would I be willing to be here? I wonder if what we may face someday in America, what our attitude will be at that time. Will it be an attitude of adoration? People say, oh, they scoff. I'll say, James, that's never going to happen in America. Really? Really? Just in my lifetime, since I came to Christ in 1972, our nation has gone through remarkable changes in its attitude toward those of us who follow the Lordship of Christ. In every area of our culture, remarkable changes. I maybe am more aware of it than you are because I was a, I've, I've been in ministry. And so I've been very attuned to the changes that are happening in our nation toward those of us who call Jesus King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I want to tell you, in my adult lifetime, it has been incredible. I wonder what it's going to be in my grandchildren's lifetime. I wonder if Jesus doesn't come before them, what it will be like. Will we face a time when our willingness to risk it all to worship at the feet of Jesus will be tested? I don't know. I suspect so. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly before my grandchildren have to face that. I doubt that I will in my lifetime. But there's a real good chance if Jesus tarries that they will. And here we are, <clears throat> playing golf, hitting our little white ball off the tee box to the green. And yet, some who came before us gave their lives to be in that very same place for the purpose of doing what the wise men did, of bowing down and worshiping, of coming in adoration. <clears throat> To the Lord Jesus. Well, they also brought gifts. We'll not spend time on that. You're familiar with those. They were gifts that were prophetic gifts, actually. The gold, fit of a king, the frankincense, <clears throat> which was commanded by God in Exodus chapter 34 to be burned in the, temp in the tabernacle, which actually symbolized the prayers of God's people going up to him. They brought gold, they brought frankincense, and they brought myrrh, which was part of the Preparation of the body for burial. They anointed the body. And so prophetically, even as these three wise men bowed at the, at the manger, they were speaking, this is a king. 
This is the one who will intercede. This is the one who will give his life as a ransom for many. So what is your attitude? Is it one of apathy? Are you fine with the baby Jesus? Is it one of antagonism? Or will it be when it gets tough? Or is it one of adoration? You see, there's a whole lot that we can learn from this story other than just the fact that it was a baby that was born in a manger. Oh, this baby grew up, folks. He grew up. He began to make claims. He began to make demands. And his demands, when he was walking on this earth, the very same demands that they are today. I am King of kings, Lord of lords. What will you do with me? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for those wise men who saw beyond um, something that probably was barely even noticed by anybody other than them and, and Herod at the time, a baby born of a peasant family in a small burg, hardly noticeable. But for these it was because you communicated very clearly to them what it was about. And what they did was reflective of that knowledge that they adored, they came to worship. I pray, Father, for our hearts here today as we look back on those faithful followers of yours like them and people on that golf hole several centuries ago who had such a strong drive together with brothers and sisters in Christ and bow and worship the risen Christ that they were willing to risk even life itself. So here in this Christmas season, Father, I pray that even as we enjoy all of the traditions and we enjoy all of the memories that we have as children and we want to pass those on to the next generation, thank you for those, Lord. But at, in the midst of it all, let us not forget that ultimately we are here to adore. We are here to bow down. We are here to acknowledge that that baby grew up King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and has a rightful claim upon us. This we pray in the strong and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. That Christmas Eve service is going to be 30 minutes is all. Some of you are thinking, man, I don't want to stand out there in the cold for an hour. Only going to be about 30 minutes. It's just going to be, we're going to, we're going to worship together. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Uh, we're going to do the candle lighting. I'm going to do the three traditional songs with my guitar that I typically do at the end of that. But it's, the whole thing is only going to last about 30 minutes, and then we'll be able to go home. If inclement weather doesn't get us, keep your eye on Facebook this week, because if something really does happen and we have to make a switch, then that's how we will pretty much communicate to you, okay? You go, I don't do Facebook. I don't know how you live. Yeah. <laughs> In freedom. <laughs> A much stressless life, right? Amen. All right. God bless you. See you.